We are back in Genesis. Open your Bibles, please, to Genesis 13. Genesis 13. And if you've not been with us in this study, you're, you're kind of hopping a train. If you've never hopped a train, it's, it's kind of a sudden jolt. You grab onto that thing and it's going and it has much more mass than you do. So it just kind of yanks you along. So forgive me for the abrupt start if you're hopping the train of Genesis today with us. Uh, but we're catching up to Abram and God's revelation of himself to Abram and God's revelation of his covenant, the Abrahamic covenant it's called. And God's promises in that covenant, and specifically God's land promise in that covenant. And you say, well, Pastor Chuck, what does that have to do with me? Well, I'm so glad you asked. And I hope by the end of this message, you'll know what that has to do with you. It's not just uh, God's personal revelation for some ancient guy who lived long ago in a tent, and uh, now he's dead and gone and has no connection with us today. It's God's revelation of himself to mankind through Abraham and God's covenant (coughs) with Abraham and all of us yet to be fully realized and fulfilled. So Genesis 13, uh, together with me, and we'll pick up in verses 14 through 18. Genesis 13, 14 through 18. And the Lord said to Abram, After Lot had separated from him, lift your eyes and now look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all of the land which you see I give to you and your descendants forever. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants could also be numbered. Arise, walk in the land through its length and its width, for I give it to you. Then Abram moved his tent and went and dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and built an altar there to the Lord. And here we find God reiterating the land promise in the Abrahamic covenant that he has already given in the previous chapter, chapter 12, Verse 1, now the Lord said to Abram, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God called Abram to leave his country, his family his father's house, and to go to a land that he would show him, the land of Canaan. And God gave him that land. And he reiterates it several times over. Immediately in the very next chapter, at the end of the chapter, and let's reiterate what was in that chapter, we have Abram and Lot in chapter 13. We have Abram saying to Lot, look, our herds have grown too large. Our servants are now in conflict with each other. Whichever way you go, whatever land you choose, I'll go the other way. Abram, the elder uncle, Abram, actually the rightful owner of the land because God essentially has deeded it to him, humbly said, you take whichever land you like, I'll go the other way and gave Lot his preference. And in that light in that context, 
we find the Lord now reiterating to Abraham, this land is your land. Look north, south, east, and west, and all the land that you see I give unto you. Lot, of course, chose the best land, and the Lord reiterates, all of the land is your land, Abram. And that has not just immediate significance, but eternal significance. And we'll see that unfold in the hour to come. And so uh, we find this land promise that God has given here, and we find it reiterated again and again and again all the way through Genesis and even referenced beyond Genesis in the Old Testament and the New Testament. In Genesis 15, Genesis 15, which we will get to in, in some months, but let's get a preview of it now. In Genesis chapter 15, verse 1, it says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Then Abram said, Look, uh, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and count the stars if you're able to number them. And he said, So shall your descendants be. And then verse 6, and this is key, Genesis 15, verse 6, And he believed in the Lord, and he, the Lord, accounted it to him for righteousness. How was Abram saved? Abram was saved by faith, the same way we're saved. He was saved by faith alone. What you find here is like in Genesis 13. He is in this land. Lot has just chosen the better portion of the land. There are still Canaanites in the land, and yet God says, this land is your land. That's Genesis 13. Genesis 15, the Lord has also said, your descendants are going to be vast. You're going to be great. You're going to be a great people. And he has no descendants. And now he's an old man. And the Lord says, nevertheless, you will have a descendant from your own body and descendants from that son, from your own flesh. And so the Lord keeps promising things that seem impossible. This land will be your land. That child that is not of your flesh will not be your descendant. You will have a son of your own flesh and that of your wife's. And so Abram believed the Lord against all odds. He believed the Lord against everything that seemed so real. And I just want to challenge you that right now, there are things that seem very real. And those things would steal away your joy and your peace. Believe God that there's a new heaven and a new earth in which only righteousness dwells coming. Believe God that Christ, the King, is coming again that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess him as Lord. And he will rule and reign on this earth. Believe God and have peace in that. And that if you are in Christ, if Christ is your Lord and Savior, you will be there experiencing life and life abundant. The promise of abundant life really isn't for now. Now, you will get your best life now in Christ. Meaning, the best experience of this temporal life that you have will be in Christ. But your best life is not now. Your best life is eternal life 
and that's yet to come. And you have to pass through the veil of death to get to it. Or the Lord returns, and in the twinkling of an eye, as Elder Dale read, you'll be changed and made a new creature, utterly and fully, putting off death, putting off the body of death. But let us continue in Genesis 15, verse 7. Then he, the Lord, said to him, Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? So at every turn, Abram says, Lord, I believe you, but it's hard to see how this is going to come to pass. I'm now an old man. I don't have a child. My wife is an older woman, (laughs) and we don't have a child. I look about in this land, and there's all these Chaldeans, all these Canaanites. And then Lot took the best land. (laughs) How is this going to be? Verse 9, he said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And then he brought all these to him and cut them in two down the middle and placed each piece opposite of the other. But he did not cut the birds in two. And when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, horror and a great darkness fell upon him. And he said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs. And they will serve them and they will afflict them 400 years. And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. Afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. Now as for you, you shall go down to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall return here. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And so... God recommits himself to his covenant with Abram with this blood sacrifice, and now he he gives further revelation to how this is going to come to pass. How is it that I'm going to become a great nation, that I'm going to have descendants, and that we're going to possess this vast land full of Canaanites? How is that going to come to pass? And God gives them further revelation. Here's how it's going to come to pass. Your descendants are going to go down to Egypt and be enslaved there for 400 years. And in God's time, he will send Moses to set his people free. And then they will leave Egypt and return to Canaan. Now, this is the story of Abram and God's revelation to him. But do you know who penned it? Moses. Moses penned it. And what a blessing to Moses to know what God is doing with him and how far back this plan of God goes. In fact, it goes well beyond its revelation to Abram. It goes back to eternity past when God planned it all. But this nation will come to pass through an unlikely means, through 400 years of slavery in Egypt And then afterward, they will come out with great possessions. The nation whom they serve, I will judge. And God did judge Egypt. How? Ten glorious, devastating plagues. Until finally, Egypt was begging them to leave and throwing their gold and possessions upon them. Take it all. Take it all. Just leave. And with that, The nation of Israel was birthed out of Egypt, crossing the Red Sea, 
meeting God at Mount Sinai, receiving the Ten Commandments, marching to Canaan. Verse 17, Genesis 15, 17, It came to pass when the sun went down and was dark, that behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces, those, those beasts that had been split down the middle and set upon the ground. And the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river Euphrates. To your descendants I have given this land. And he gives the parameters. From the river of Egypt to the great river Euphrates. The Canaanites, the Kenizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, and the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites, all their land he gives unto Israel. He has sworn it once again, and he's given further revelation as to how that's going to come to pass. Now, there's much more there, much more meat in the bone in Genesis 15, but I'm just trying to show you the, the flow of God's covenant promise and how he keeps increasing the revelation of how that's going to come to pass. And that God's covenant promise is a land and a seed and a blessing, but the land is always central to that promise. And in, again, in Genesis 13, there was that key word, that key word, Forever. Genesis 13, 15, For all the land which you see I give to you and your descendants forever. Forever. And then verse 17, Arise and walk in the land through its length and its width, for I give it to you. It's their land. In 1948, after the entire world rejected the Jews, the Jews had no place to go but back to their land. And they went to the land of Canaan. And all the Muslim nations around them swore to the destruction. All the Muslim nations around them cried out that the world would stand against them returning to their land, would stand against them raising up Israel from the ashes after 2,000 years, raising a nation long dead and a language long dead, unspoken, back to life. And... Immediately after their reestablishment as a nation, they were attacked. And every time they were attacked, the Lord gave them more of their land. And yet they do not possess it all yet, nor have they ever possessed it all yet, all the land that the Lord has given them. An excellent book by the title of The Blood of the Moon uh, says this, Israel is the promised land of the Jews. It is their Abrahamic inheritance, but throughout history they have inhabited it only rarely. When Moses secured freedom from slavery in Egypt for his people, he led them back to that patriarchal homeland. They had been absent 400 years. During that time, others had inhabited the region. The Canaanites, Ammonites, Edomites, Moabites, Midianites, Philistine had made their homes in and around Palestine. And they were hardly inclined to recognize Israel's prior claim. In addition, the original settlers, the Canaanites, the Kenizzites, and the Kadamites, and the Hittites, and Perizzites, Rephaim, Girgashites, and Jebusites were equally uncooperative. War between Ishmael and Isaac was inevitable. And so uh, these are the descendants of Ishmael. And in chapter 15, uh, he was saying, look, all I have is, is Ishmael. Um, or actually, no, he was saying, I have a, my servant's son. But later, Abram and Sarah, at Sarah's bidding, would try to bring an heir through the handmaid, and 
And through that, they end up with Ishmael, not God's covenant child. And this child Ishmael ultimately would become the father of nations that would be the enemy of Israel. According to the Bible, the conquest of the land under the leadership of heroes of the faith and valor such as Joshua, Caleb, Othiel, Ehud, Shamgar, Deborah, Gideon, Jephthah, Samson, Samuel, Saul, and David was a long, bloody, and torturous affair not to be forgotten by either side ever. And that's what you find in the Old Testament is God's Old Testament people, the kingdom of Israel, warring to take and or hold the land that God gave them. The Muslim annals written during the time of Muhammad's Hijra in the Medina assert this, quote, the criminal Jews have brought destruction upon the Ummah. Ummah is uh, a term, a Muslim term for faithful Muslims. So the criminal Jews have brought destruction upon the Ummah since the earliest times. Their leaders conspired to send the innocent of Canaan away from their homes. They repulsed the pleas of the Philistine widows and Moabite orphans and washed their fields in the blood of the Ammonite poor. Therefore, they shall not stand in the day of judgment, nor shall they prevail against the sure coming of jihad. Allah shall pronounce just retribution, and the Ummah shall observe with joy and gladness. In the Muslim mind... Uh, And in the Quran, the Muslim book, uh, Allah is the enemy of the Jews. And yet you have many Christians and professing Christians and non-believers who believe or think that Allah is the God of the Bible, that Allah is is the same God as Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And yet the Quran is is quite clear that the Ummah, the faithful Muslim, is the enemy of the Jew and the Christian. And you must know that the jihadis that murder Jews and Christians and others, they are faithful to the Quranic teachings. They are faithful to the Surah of the Sword, Surah 9, the, the great bloody chapter in the Quran, and the commands of Allah, the idol, the false god of Islam. But the Muslim world sees Israel as the invader still. And they build their opposition to them on that ground, that ancient ground. They still claim that ground. But hear me, it's God's ground. And God gives his ground to whomever he wishes. And he gave that ground to Israel. And and let me tell you this, he's going to give all the ground to his church. All of it. All of it. You will inherit the earth if you're in Christ Jesus. Jesus, when Christ returns. And so don't fret your inheritance. Don't fret the stock market going down. Don't fret uh, business opportunities going down. Uh, Don't fret the hope of retirement uh, slipping away, perhaps. And none of that may be realized. The stock market, if it goes down, will likely come up. Your inheritance will likely be intact. Or the end of America may draw an eye. I don't know. This I know. That inheritance, whatever it might be, that earthly inheritance, would slip from your hands the moment you die anyway. It'd be nice to leave it to your children and your children's children until the Lord should return. But this is our confidence that our eternal inheritance is secure. And our eternal inheritance is the love of God, is being in the position of being a child of God. And That relationship is our chief inheritance, is a forgiven, blood-washed child of God, living in the presence of God our Father forever. 
But with that inheritance comes even a material inheritance. We inherit the earth. An amazing thing. And so there's a relationship between this promise to Abram and that final reality with all of God's people in the new heavens and new earth. But you must know that this ground is a ground of contention. Again, from the book, The Blood of the Moon, it continues several years before he signed the extraordinary Camp David Accord with Israel. Egyptian President Anwar Sadat said this, quote, the assassination of Arab brethren like Goliath by Jewish sheep herders like David is the sort of shameful thing that we must yet set aright in the domain of the occupied Palestinian homeland. So when you hear of the plight of the Palestinians, you must know that the Muslim mindset, the Arab mindset, goes all the way back to, how do they refer to David? The Jewish sheep herder David. They still remember that David slew Goliath. And they're still put out by that, that David slew Goliath. About that same time, the Palestinian leader, Yasser Arafat, now calling him a Palestinian leader is kind, the Palestinian terrorist, Yasser Arafat, said this, quote, Be assured that the many indignities heaped upon the Palestinian people since ancient times must and shall be avenged. Israel's policy in the occupied territories is little more than an extension of the imperialist tactics of the conqueror Joshua. Surely the judgment of Allah is reserved for them until Palestine is transferred from Dar al-Harb to Dar al-Islam. Ishmael shall have his revenge. That's Yasser Arafat. Now the, the news, don't, they don't typically report these kind of things. These are ancient realities. And there is an ancient conflict And this will not be resolved until Christ, the King of the Jews, returns. Now my hope is there will be a great spiritual harvest out of the Muslim world and that a great many of them will yet bend their knee and confess Jesus Christ as Lord, that they will repent of their idolatry of Allah and worship Yahweh, the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who became Israel, from whom Jesus, the King of the Jews, the king of the cosmos, the king of all men, and the only savior came. Because he came to save some from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Even those tribes that call themselves Palestinians today. Continuing from that book, most of the Jews who survived the destruction of Jerusalem and the devastation of the land in the hands of the Romans in A.D. 70 joined the already large uh, diaspora in exile. But a few continued to try to scratch out a living in the blighted environs of Palestine. During the period of Roman and later Byzantine rule, Palestine was utterly neglected. Its poverty became abject. The once lush gardens and fertile fields were left to the scourge of harsh elements. Trees and vegetation were cut away. What little remained of the once beautiful architecture deteriorated badly to neglect. Even so, the Jews were legally protected and they could work and worship in relative peace and security. And because the entire Arab population had converted to Christianity, Palestine became a tiny Jewish island in the vast sea of the Christian Middle East. But then came Islam. During the time that he was exiled from Mecca, Muhammad launched a fierce jihad against the significant Jewish communities of Hejaz. 
In Medina, the interim headquarters of his movement, he had the Jewish men scourged and decapitated in the public square. He then divided their women, children, animals, and property amongst his followers. During this time, he recorded in his Quranic revelations the immutability of the eternal conflict between Muslims and Jews. And this is from the Quran, chapter 5, verse 82. You shall surely find the most violent of all men in enmity against the Ummah to be the Jews. O oh, true believers, take not the Jews and Christians for your friends. They cannot be trusted. They are defiled filth. Uh, the Jews are smitten with vileness and misery and drew on themselves indignation from Allah. Wherever they are found, the Jews reek of destruction which is their just reward. This is all from the Quran. According to the Meccan chronicles of that early period, recorded in the Sahai Muslim annals, all Jews were anathema and were to be annihilated. Allah's messenger, may peace be upon him, has commanded, fight against the Jews and kill them. Pursue them until even a stone would say, come here, Muslim, there is a Jew hiding himself behind me. Kill him, kill him quickly. The day after Israel officially became a nation, May 14, 1948, three Palestinian Arab armies, the, the Najada forces, the Arab Liberation Army, and the Fatwa Defense League, along with the national military forces of Lebanon, Syria, Egypt, Jordan, Iraq, and several contingents from the Saudi Arabian army launched a bitter war for control of the entire Palestinian region. According to the Arab leaders, there was absolutely no possibility for any sort of compromise or negotiated peace. Haj Amin el-Husseini, the Mufti of Jerusalem, who had served the Nazis during World War II and who now led the Palestinian Arab resistance, declared, quote, the entire Jewish population in Palestine must be destroyed or driven into the sea. Allah has bestowed upon us the rare privilege of finishing what Hitler only began. Let the jihad begin. Murder the Jews. Murder them all. King Abdul Aziz Ibn Saud, the founding monarch of the Saudi Sultanate, said, quote, The Arab nations should sacrifice up to 10 million of their 50 million people, if necessary, to wipe out Israel. Israel, to the Arab world, is like a cancer to the human body, and the only way of remedy is to uproot it. Unquote. Likewise, Al-Riyad Saad said, quote, The power struggle between Israel and the Arabs is a long-term historical trial. Victory or defeat are for us questions of existence or annihilation, the outcome of an irreconcilable hatred. Azam Pasha, Secretary General of the Arab League, asserted that, quote, This will be a war of extermination and a momentous massacre, which will be spoken of like the Mongolian massacres and the Crusades. No Jew will be left alive. This is all days after their reestablishment as a nation, May 14, 1948. King Farouk of Egypt said this, quote, The Jews in Palestine must be exterminated. There can be no other option for those of us who revere the name of Allah. There will be no Dima. There will only be Jihad. From King Abdullah of the Transjordan to Zahir Shah of Afghanistan, from Imam Yah of Yemen to King Hassan of Morocco, from Reza Shah of Iran to Regent Abd Il of Iraq, every Muslim leader in the Middle East 
called for the destruction of Israel and the execution of the Jews. Even the moderate king Idris of Libya sounded the call for genocide, saying, quote, The Zionist conquest of Palestine is an affront to all Muslims. This colonist barbarism cannot and will not be tolerated. There can be no compromise until every Jew is dead and gone. Israeli leaders responded tenaciously that they would fight to the death to keep and defend their new land holdings. They swore that one day they would occupy Jerusalem as well. Although the war ended in a stalemate, with Israel keeping most of the territory, it was allotted in the partition plus some. The animosity between Ishmael and Isaac intensified. Successive wars in 1956, 1967, and 1973 made their conflict a global concern. In addition, the terrorist strikes of the Palestinian Liberation Organization, the PLO, and the portrayed involvement of Israel in the Lebanese Civil War only aggravated the open wounds of dispossession, anarchy, and geopolitical strife. Violence and strife had become a regular part of the Palestinian landscape, and really all of my life and all of yours, if you're watching, the news flows from the Middle East, and it centers around Jerusalem, centers around Israel, centers around this ancient conflict. And it's a conflict because God established his kingdom in the earth through Abram, whom he called out of the land of the Chaldeans. And he gave him Canaan. And the tribes of this world and the religion that spawned from this tribal people are opposed to the tribe of Israel that became the nation of Israel. And they're opposed to them still and opposed to their God. So all that to say, it's Israel's land. It's the land of the Jews. And while the Jews are not yet spiritual Jews in the sense of bending their knee to Jesus Christ, the King. The Lord in his providence brought a nation back into existence that had not existed for nearly 2,000 years. He revived their dead language of Hebrew. He revived their nation. And that seems to be, and most certainly is, in preparation for the return of their King, the return of King Jesus. And while we do not defend or justify any atrocities that Israel might commit, I am here to tell you that the world system has always opposed the Jews. Anti-Jewish sentiment has always been the rule. And of course, the Arab Muslim nations don't just oppose the Jews, don't just oppose Israel, they hate them. And they've made that quite clear, that their hatred is born out of this historic Strife. Their hatred for Israel is such that they call them Satan. And America, this Christian nation that helps them, the great Satan. And so this is not some little land conflict. It's, it's not some little difference in culture. It ultimately is an ancient conflict born out of a rebellion against God, mankind rising up against the Jews because the Jews are God's people with the revelation of God's law and God's people for whom Christ came. And so we find this revelation continue to unfold in Scripture in Joshua chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. The book of Joshua further reveals the dimensions of the land that God gave to 
Israel. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, saying, Moses, my servant is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving them, the children of Israel. Remember, Abraham had a son named Isaac. Isaac had a son named Jacob. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. Jacob had 12 sons, which became the 12 tribes of Israel. The Lord gave the land to Abram, gave it to Isaac, gave it to Jacob. And here he's given it to the nation that came from the loins of Abram, as God had promised. So Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I'm giving to them, the children of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you. As I said to Moses from the wilderness, and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, and to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. It's Israel's land. And while the news often is full of Palestinians pleading their plight against Israel and and speaking of the so-called aggressive behavior of Israel, Israel, for the most part, has been a peacemaker. For the most part, has sought simply to take the land that God gave them and just to hold it and live there peaceably. And they have sought to pass laws that would prosper not just Jews, but Gentiles or Palestinians or Arabs or Muslims, whatever you want to call them, alike. And it's not Israel that's continually launching rockets into the Palestinian state, which really belongs to the Jews. It's the Palestinians who are launching rockets into Israel. They are the continual aggressors, the Palestinians who bomb civilians on buses and coffee shops and other places in Israel. It's the Palestinians who come with rocks and Molotov cocktails and throw them at the Israeli soldiers until finally they provoke them to defend their own lives and the lives of others. And then if they take the lives of these aggressors, of these terrorists, Uh, with their rocks and their Molotov cocktails and their bombs, uh, then they are reported by liberal media as uh, abusing the poor Palestinians once again. In reality, they should have taken Palestine some time ago, and they should have taken all of Jerusalem and the Temple Mount some time ago, and yet they haven't. But it is their land, and when Christ returns, it will be their land. And the king of the Jews will rule and reign there for a thousand years until the new heavens and new earth comes. Has this promise reiterated in Joshua, this promise in Genesis 15, this promise in Genesis 13 of this land with these parameters, has this promise been fulfilled? Has Israel possessed its land? Yes, no, and not yet. (laughs) One writer answers that question well. With these words, in Joshua chapter 1, verse 4, God promised Joshua that the land of Israel would include territory extending from the desert to Lebanon and from the great river to the Euphrates, all the Hittite country to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. This territory would include the land from the southern tip of Israel along the Red Sea to the Euphrates River on the east, the border of Syria on the north, and the Mediterranean Sea to the west. As of yet, Israel has not controlled this entire land area ever. 
In Joshua's time, much of the land of Canaan was brought under Israelite control. In the time of David and his son, Solomon, approximately 1000 BC, a wide area of land was under Israel's control or influence. Yet the entire territory promised to Israel in Scripture, both in Joshua 1.4 and elsewhere, has yet to be fulfilled. Some point to a passage later in the book of Joshua as contradicting the promise of Joshua 1.4. After the conquest of Canaan, the historical account says, quote, So the Lord gave Israel all the land which he had sworn to give their fathers, and they possessed it and lived in it. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, according to all that he had sworn to their fathers. And no one of all their enemies stood before them. The Lord gave all their enemies into their hand. Not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. All came to pass. Joshua 21, verses 43-45. There is no actual contradiction here. At the time referred to in Joshua 21, all of Israel's enemies were subdued. No one posed a threat to God's people. God had given them a right to everything he had promised in Joshua 1.4. And they were authorized to take possession of the entire land all the way to the Euphrates as soon as they needed it and as soon as they called on the Lord for aid. The fact that they never did so does not negate the fact that God had kept his promise. After Joshua's death, the book of Judges teaches the Israelites turned away from God. As a punishment, God allowed their enemies to increase in power, and Israel lost territory that God had given them. Judges chapter 2, verse 14 says, quote, In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Various judges arose during this period, and there was an ongoing battle for the control of Israel's territory. Later, during the reigns of David and Solomon, Israel controlled the largest part of the promised land to date. After Solomon's reign, the kingdom was divided into the kingdom of Israel to the north and the kingdom of Judah to the south. Both kingdoms were eventually, both kingdoms eventually sinned to such a degree that God allowed outside nations to defeat them, and most of the Jews were exiled. Yet God was not done with his people. He restored Israel's territory. The, book of, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah document the return of the Jewish people from Babylon 70 years after their exile. And they must have thought that was miraculous. And in some ways it was. 70 years in exile and then to return and once again establish their nation. The temple was rebuilt and worship in Jerusalem was reestablished. Israel continued in their land until 70 AD when the Romans destroyed the temple and overtook Jerusalem. It would not be until 1948 that modern Israel was established following World War II. And again, I remind you that there was no place for them to go. Obviously, Hitler brought a great persecution against the Jews, but Russia also brought a great persecution against the Jews. The Jews were fleeing from Europe. They were fleeing from Russia Great Britain would not have them, and to our shame, America would not have them either. Everyone turned them away, and so they went back to the land of Canaan. All of God's good providence to reestablish his nation. Now, more than 60 years later, this article is written in 2008, so it's quite a bit more than 60 years later. Israel has become a thriving nation, the longest established democracy in the Middle East, yet many of its neighbors remain hostile, and a Palestinian movement seeks to develop its own nation within the borders of modern Israel's territory. The Bible teaches that God will eventually fulfill the promise to give Israel full control over the promised land. 
Israel's full territory will ultimately be ruled by the Messiah during the millennium. The thousand-year reign of Christ that Revelation chapter 20 verses 1 through 6 speaks of explicitly. God promises, partly fulfilled throughout history, will have complete literal fulfillment prior to God's creation of a new heavens and new earth, declared in Revelation 21 and 22. Look with me to Genesis 17. Genesis 17, verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am Almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless, and I will make my covenant between me and you and multiply you exceedingly. So he's reestablishing his covenant once again when Abram's 99 years old. Verse 3, Then Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant. We started in Genesis 13. I give you this land forever. For all the land which you see, I give to you and your descendants forever. And here we are in Genesis 17. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you and their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Also, I will give you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Now, let me stress something that God is stressing here. Your descendants. I give this land, a particular land, to a particular people. This land, with these parameters, known parameters, I give to a known people, the actual descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So that portion of the church that we love, that wants to transfer these promises to the church and spiritualize them and say these promises will not be realized for Israel, they have a serious problem here. Because God states this covenant promise again and again in the strongest possible, most explicit terms. This land is your land forever. And I ratify it with a covenant that is everlasting to your descendants. Specific land Specific descendants, clear, everlasting covenant, everlasting possession. Genesis 17, verse 8 says, Also, I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan, as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. It has been rightly said that the promise of the land for the Jewish people is repeated over and over in the Word of God. One writer states, Scripture has at least 170 references to the land that God gave to the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God promised the land of Canaan to the Jews as an unconditional covenant. Fifty-five times the Bible records that God confirmed the gift with an oath. Twelve of those times he stated that the covenant was everlasting. It is abundantly clear from the Bible that the Jewish people have been given the land of Israel from God and are the rightful owners. 
And the Palestinians can't claim ownership and take it from them. And our Christian all-mill brothers and sisters can't claim ownership and take it from them. Somehow transferring those promises and spiritualizing them from the Jews to the Christian church. God will fulfill his plan for his people. Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 4. Do not think in your heart after the Lord your God has cast them out before you, saying, because of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. So it's God telling Israel, look, I'm not doing this because of your righteousness. I'm doing this because of my righteousness. I have made a covenant. It's a unilateral covenant, meaning I have sworn it. I will bring it to pass, independent of anything you do. And so do not think in your heart after the Lord your God has cast them out from before you, saying, because of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. But it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out from before you. And it's not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart that you go in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God drives them out from before you. And that he may fulfill the word which he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Therefore, understand that the Lord your God has not given you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stiff-necked people. God is keeping his covenant because God is good. And God is a covenant keeper. He's a promise keeper. He's not keeping his covenant and his promise because Israel is good. Now, he will make Israel good. He will yet grant them repentance and faith in their king, our king, the king, Jesus Christ. But the argument that some Christians make is as to why God has transferred these promises from Israel and spiritualized them and given them to the church is because Israel was bad. But the Word of God clearly says these promises and God's fulfillment of them are not based upon Israel's goodness, on Israel's obedience or righteousness. And by the way, if you want to compare the church and Israel... The church has a spotty history as well. The only faithful one ultimately is God himself. And it's by grace alone that we're saved. And it's by grace alone that we continue to walk in sanctification universally together and individually. And so God keeps his covenant with Israel and God keeps his covenant with the church independent of the goodness of Israel or the goodness of of the church. That's not justification for poor behavior individually or corporately, but God gets the glory for keeping his covenant, and God will bring his covenant promises to pass independent of mankind's behavior. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, Deuteronomy 30, verse 5, it says, Then the Lord your God will bring you to the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it. He will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. So similar to Deuteronomy 9, which says, Look, God's going to do this not because of your goodness, but because of his goodness. And because he's bringing judgment upon these sinful nations. Well, Deuteronomy 30 says, look, God's going to bring you to this land and you're going to possess this land and you're going to prosper. And God is going to circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants. God is going to regenerate your heart. 
God is going to save you and make you new creatures that walk in righteousness and obey God. God is not giving you the land because you are choosing righteousness, repenting of sin and following Him. No, God is giving you this land and bringing you to this land and He's going to make you righteous. And really, that's what I see unfolding. After nearly 2,000 years of non-existence, Israel exists again, 1948, fairly miraculous, with the whole world crying out against them. And its existence is not as a spiritual Israel, but a national Israel. And yet, here it is stated, God's going to give them the land, and then He's going to circumcise their heart and the heart of their descendants, which sounds a lot like the New Covenant, the circumcision of the heart that we find in Jeremiah chapter 30. Jeremiah chapter 30. And here in this new covenant, Jeremiah provides the vital prophetic commentary on Deuteronomy 30. Spiritual promises can't be separated from the physical land promises to Israel. The new covenant promises include the land promise forever. Jeremiah 30 Verses 1 through, Back from captivity, my people Israel and Judah, says the Lord, and I will cause them to return to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall possess it. Now, we usually skip right past these opening verses in Jeremiah 30. We skip right past it to the new covenant promise in Jeremiah 31. How does Jeremiah 31 open up? Well, let's look at verse 1. At the same time, says the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel. That's national Israel. And they shall be my people. That is a spiritually revived national Israel. It's an entire nation of Jews worshiping their God, bending their knee to their king. I will be the God of all the families of Israel, says God in Jeremiah 31, verse 1. And they shall be my people people. Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. To me, it is audacious that the church would show up and say, hey, that's our covenant, not the nation of Israel. That's not really Israel. The church is Israel. It's our covenant. In context, it is so clearly, absolutely, and undeniably The new covenant given to the descendants, the literal descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And yet, Christians show up and say, no, 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 no. God has divorced himself from them for their bad behavior, which again is completely contrary to Deuteronomy 9 and 30. And this is now a spiritualized promise for the church. It is the new covenant given to Israel. And praise God, the church is grafted into it. And we receive blessings from it. But it's a covenant given to Israel. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. That is undeniably national Israel. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, though I was husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days." So God addresses the idea of divorce there. The covenant they broke, even though I was husband to Israel. Israel, the bride, God, the groom. They broke covenant. He did not. He is still faithful to his covenant with them. Verse 33, But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. 
I will put my law in their minds. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. They shall all know me. They shall all know me. I will put my law in their minds and write it in their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. That is a miracle of national regeneration. They shall all know me. Verse 35, thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day and the ordinances, the moon and stars for a light by night who disturbs the sea and its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from me, from before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. The new covenant is sandwiched between national Israel promises. You cannot pull it out of there. You cannot divorce the new covenant from Israel, who God declares himself to still be in covenant relationship with as groom. Verse 37, thus says the Lord, if heaven above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off the seed of Israel for all they have done, says the Lord. The common argument there dies. The argument that God has cast them off for their poor behavior. He says, look, if, if this cosmos is undone or if you can measure it all, then sure, my covenant with Israel is undone. My covenant with the seed, the very seed that goes all the way back to Genesis 12 and the original statement of the covenant. Or we could say much more there. We'll cover it more in days to come. But let us consider in the New Testament how this flows from the old to the new briefly, and then we'll close. In Romans chapter 9, the Apostle Paul says, I tell the truth in Christ, I'm not lying. My conscience also bearing witness in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren. Who are the brethren he's talking about? His national brethren, Israel. For my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, not nullified, the adoption, permanent, the glory, the covenants, permanent, The giving of the law, the service of God, the promises, everlasting, forever, permanent, of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, the eternally blessed God. Amen. The Apostle Paul doesn't open up Romans 9 saying, look, these promises have all been transferred to the church because of Israel's unfaithfulness. These covenants have all been transferred to the church because of Israel's unfaithfulness. He doesn't say that at all. He says the exact opposite. In Romans 10, verse 1, he says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved, for national Israel, that they may be saved by bending their knee to their King and their Savior, their Messiah, the Lord Jesus. He has a heart for national Israel. He hasn't given up on national Israel. And then in Romans chapter 11, Romans chapter 11, 
Verse 1, I say then, has God cast away his people? What people? Israel, national Israel. Has God cast away his people? Has he divorced himself from his people? Has he nullified his covenant with his people? Has he declared the promises that are forever to be null and void? No. That's the whole point that he's making. I say then, has God cast away his people, national Israel? Certainly not. For I am also an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin, national Israel. He's one of them. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone alone am left, and they seek my life. But what? Does the divine response say to him, I have reserved myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so, at this present time, there's a remnant according to the election of grace. So at this present time, there's a remnant according to the election of grace. So God has not cast off Israel. Some Jews, praise God, are being saved at this present time. But he looks beyond the present to the future in Romans 11. Verse 11 I say then, have they, national Israel, stumbled that they should fall, permanently be set aside? Certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? How much more national Israel's future fullness? Verse 13, for I speak to you Gentiles as much As I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh, national Israel, and save some of them, national Israel, for their being cast away is the reconciling of the world. What will be their acceptance? Future be but life from the dead. A nation set aside for 2,000 years, brought back from the ashes, and soon to be brought back spiritually and his law written on their hearts, they being his people and he being their God. Verse 19, you will say then branches were broken off that we might be grafted in. So branches from national Israel broken off that the Jewish, that the Gentile church might be grafted in, grafted into the new covenant promise. Well said, Because of unbelief, they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, national Israel, he may not spare spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God. On those who fell, national Israel, severity, but toward you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For you were cut out of the olive tree, which is, by, uh, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature in a cultivated olive tree, Israel. How much more will these, who are the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? So the natural branches, national Israel, grafted into their own olive tree, the new covenant. Verse 25, I do, not, I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so Israel, national Israel, will be saved. 
The deliverer will come out of Zion. He will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant, the new covenant, with them, national Israel, when I take away their, national Israel's, sins. Concerning the gospel, they are, at this time of his writing, unregenerate. They're enemies for your sake. But concerning the election, they, the Abrahamic covenant-bound nation of Israel, they are beloved for the sake of their fathers. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Verse 29. For the gifts, the Abrahamic covenant, the promises, repeated again and again and again, and the calling of God are irrevocable. For as you were once disobedient to God, and yet now have obtained mercy through their disobedience, even so these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. For God has committed them all, national Israel, to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all, Jew and Gentile. Oh, the depth of the riches of both the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid him? For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. And all of God's people said, Amen. This is the plan of God through the ages. This is the covenant plan of God through the ages. And God has sworn that this covenant is forever, that his promise is everlasting. And this land is the Jews forever. And praise God, this new covenant is the Jews' new covenant, national Israel's new covenant. They will become spiritual Israel. They will all be regenerated. And we, by the grace of God, the Gentile church has been grafted in to that new covenant. It's their covenant. We are the wild branches grafted in. Praise God for his amazing grace. And so we look forward to that day that our king returns, that he sets foot down in Israel, in Jerusalem, and reigns there upon the throne. And we will be there to see that as the Lord has promised. We will inherit the earth as the children of God, as the permanent citizens of the kingdom of God, grafted into the Abrahamic covenant. We are the guests. We are the wild branches. (laughs) Praise God for His grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this time and Your Word. We pray You bless it to our understanding. There are complexities, Lord, that will require illumination of your spirit. May we study to show ourselves approved, delighting in your word, Father, delighting in you, our covenant-keeping God and Father. We praise you, Lord, for this new covenant. May we delight in it and love our Jewish neighbors and call them to bend the knee to their king. Looking forward to that day where they will all Do so to your glory. We pray it in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.